and welcome to Vertigais, where we check out the dark side of DC. We're here to recap and review Vertigo comics, starting with the big three, Sandman, Hellblazer, Preacher. I'm Sean. I'm Eric. And we are the Vertigais. Today we're talking about Hellblazer. Last time we began Dangerous Habits, the iconic story arc that kicks off Garth Ennis' run, and today we are finishing it. Previously on Hellblazer. John Constantine is dying of lung cancer, so he went to see his friend Brendan to see if Brendan had a cure for cancer, but that went wrong in three ways. One, Brendan didn't have a cure for cancer. Two, Brendan was dying of liver failure. And three, to save Brendan's soul, John tricked the devil into drinking holy water and then smashed him in the face with a broken bottle. So now John really doesn't want to die and go to hell because the devil is super pissed, but he went to all his friends and asked for help and none of them could. But it seems like John's got a plan. Much like the Cylon. Yes, that's right. Especially the part about Cylons. There aren't very many copies. There's one copy. It's the Golden Child. (laughs) Okay, so this is Hellblazer issue 44, My Way. The cover shows what looks like Jesse Custer in the inset (laughs) and a big scary gravestone. I have written a morose-looking face. Yeah, there's an old overgrown cemetery and there's this kind of morose-looking face. I guess this is probably reference to a scene that we're going to get pretty early in the book. So, this is written by Garth Ennis, pencils by Will Simpson, inks by Tom Sutton, and colors by Tom Zuiko. This cover was by Tom Conti. We open with John Constantine standing in a graveyard addressing his father. And he's thinking that his father is probably laughing at him somewhere. He knows he'll be dying soon. He says he's got the shakes so bad when he tries to open his smokes, we see that he lets them all slip out on the ground. And that's probably why his father is laughing at him. Oh, I thought they were all empty. Maybe that's the joke, that he has such a hard time opening it and then there are no smokes inside. Yeah, either way. Funny, funny stuff. He's standing at his mother's grave. The grave says Marianne Constantine. Now, Tom Constantine was cremated, not buried, but John and Gemma put... Tom's ghost to rest here at his wife's grave back in Hellblazer number 31. So this is an appropriate place to address his father. Though the first of the fallen said that uh, his father was in hell, John hopes that wherever he is, he's with mom. So he's hoping that his mom is in hell. (laughs) Well then, Dad, here we are. I've spent a fortnight planning, checking, and double-checking, and there's no getting away from it. This is the only way left for me. And that's where we get our title, My Way. Your John Constantine sounds like Cassidy. Fuck. (laughs) Too Irish. Do I? Yeah, you went too Irish this time. John returns to his sister Cheryl's house. He's in Liverpool to say goodbye to her and Gemma, but when Cheryl asks if he's alright, he lies. Right, he implies that he just has the flu and suckers her into making a cup of tea for him. Cheryl says Gemma could use an uncle right now, which leads John to talk shit about Cheryl's husband. This wouldn't be because her dad spends most of his time on Valium after a hard day screwing caps onto toothpaste tubes, would it? Come on, John, he's my husband, for God's sake. Besides, it was the best thing he could get. Yeah, I know. Look, sis, about Gemma. She's going to have to cope without me from now on, okay? How How do you mean? I won't be back. I'm sorry. Now, Cheryl infers that the magical stuff that he's involved in is to blame for his upcoming demise. In fact, it couldn't be farther from the truth. He's dying of the most mundane thing possible. Smoking 27 cigarettes a day. Right. Or 20 cigarettes a day for 17 years. Yeah. Look, there's a seven in there somewhere. (laughs) John mentions here that if you're not afraid of black magic, it can't hurt you, which is probably bullshit. It seems like we've seen it hurt people all the time without them being particularly afraid of it. This is true. Anyway, he has a nice speech here about how magic is bollocks. You want to know about magic, sis? I'll give you the secret of magic. Magic is a load of sodding bollocks. What matters is the rest of you, who don't know the weird crap, who just know life. You're right, you know. I've been mixed up in it for a long time, and now I'm in over my head. John says Cheryl will have to say goodbye to Gemma for him. He's not up to it. Bloody coward, running away. No, John, you're all right. Thanks. Take care of Gemma now, okay? She'll go far, that one. Goodbye, Cheryl. Goodbye, John. And they embrace. Yeah. John is crying. Cheryl's crying. Everybody's crying. It's a powerful scene. De Niro's crying. (laughs) John John takes the train back to to London. He says the journey back is a tale in colors. The gray of Liverpool to the green of the countryside to the gray of London. This page is in all gray. We get muted colors pretty much throughout the issue. 
No, it's not entirely gray. There's brown. Once in London, John meets up with Chaz, and he starts making fun of the compact car Chaz is now using as a cab. Well, you might remember I sold the real one and blew all the money after a piece of dodgy advice from a certain someone. Yeah, okay, this really isn't John's fault. <laughs> Chaz keeps blaming him for saying the world was ending, which Chaz took to mean I don't need a cab anymore. <laughs> John needles Chaz for borrowing from a loan shark to get the car, and Chaz snaps at him. Always the same, every bloody time. When you're not scrounging lifts and stuff, you're bossing me around like I'm a friggin' two-year-old. It's because of you I had to go to Adams. You nearly had me bankrupt, you bloody wanker. Yeah, fair enough. My flat's not too far now anyway. I'll get out here. Thanks for the lift. So, they part on bad terms, Chaz muttering that he's a bastard as he walks away. But then Chaz finds the letter John left behind in the cab. Chaz, Liverpool bookies obviously haven't been warned about me. There's a load of cash enclosed. Right, this is something we've seen before. John is inordinately lucky and can make most of the money he needs to live on just by gambling. Yeah, maybe he uses magic to cheat at cards and dice and stuff. Maybe. We've never actually seen how he does it. He just seems to win a lot. This lot should get you a new cab and pay you off for all those favors you've done me. I never liked stringing you along, telling you that you owed me. I've done too much of that in my life, to too many people. I'm squaring you up now because I won't see you again. I finally pissed off one bastard too many, and I don't think I'll be sliding out of this one. Pity, really. Anyway, I'm writing this on the train from Liverpool because I'd feel like a prat saying it face to face. But it's been great knowing you, Chaz, and I'm proud to call you my mate. I'm glad we're parting as friends. Chin up, son. John. And we see Chaz crying by himself in the cab. Everybody's crying. Later that day, John gets really sick, and he knows he'll die tonight. This is something that was kind of mentioned earlier with Brendan. It seems like when you're dying, you know the day. I'm not sure that's realistic, but those are the rules as set for here. Have you ever seen, um, 50-50? Yeah. Is it Matt Frewer? Yeah, absolutely. He just, like, dies suddenly, even though he had seemed to be on the upswing. Yeah, and he's a fellow that Joseph Gordon-Levitt met in the cancer ward. Right. That story reminded me a lot of John and Matt in this story. <laughs> that's who Matt is in this story. Matt Frewer. <laughs> John knows he's dying tonight, but he has some people to talk to first. He memorizes some passages from the Grimorium Verum, and he heads out. Yeah, he's got preparations to make. He has another goodbye as well. He stops in to meet Matt at the cancer ward. Right. They are Again, fairly recent friends, having met only when John toured the cancer ward back in number 41 to see if he would want to spend his last days there. And again, Matt is Matt Frewer, the actor from Netflix's Castlevania. <laughs> He's not Castlevania? Who does he play? Oh, the bishop. Oh, yeah, okay. No, I don't think he's an actor. He's just a just an old British man. Oh, yeah. Matt, who is not an actor, says he hopes to go quickly, but he also thinks it'd be fun to go slowly, puking on the doctors and watching the nuns slip on his blood on the floor. <laughs> You're one sick old bastard, you know that? A chat with you and cardiac arrest begins to sound like a Monty Python skit. Matt tells a story about why he doesn't like the nun. After he came to the hospital, he says he had trouble taking a shit. The doctors prescribed laxatives, but the nun insisted on a colonoscopy, which was conscious and painful. Turns out it's a sodding camera! They're taking pictures up me ring piece, would you believe? What'd they find? Constipation? No. So what was it? Bowel cancer. <laughs> they both laugh. God almighty. I'm supposed to be saying goodbye to you, and all I can do is be your straight man. John says he won't be back. And... Matt, with great effort, gets to his feet in order to shake John's hand goodbye. I'm fine, son. Wanted to do this on my feet. And as they shake, Matt gives a little bit of a speech here to John. Don't ever be sorry, son. Regrets aren't worth a bugger. John spends the next page ruminating on regrets as he makes his way across London. Figures he has about three hours left, which is terribly precise, honestly. Yeah, he must really have a good sense of his own body. He heads to Westminster to say some things to some people. Yeah, so this is really self-important, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, are you talking about Constantine or Anna's? I guess I'm thinking more of it being Constantine's self-importance. Okay. Yeah, he knows he's going to die. So with a few of his last hours on Earth, he makes his way to the Parliament building to say fuck you to all politicians. Right, yeah. So this is... This is not a terribly politically engaged story as 
Constantine stories go, and here is the most political moment in it. You want a piece of me? That's from the West Wing. <laughs> when Josh shouts, you want a piece of me at the Congress building? <laughs> That's basically right. It's like the silliest moment of the show. This was after Aaron Sorkin had stopped writing it. I see, I see. <laughs> I don't think he actually says anything here. We don't see him open his mouth, but he thinks a rant about how he hates all politicians and how it was always really them he was rebelling against, not hell. Their power is like magic, he says, because it only works if people believe in it. But whatever it's worth, you were always the enemy, so you can listen to what I have to say. Matt was right. I'm not ashamed. Yeah, and this is the page taken up almost entirely by one big panel of John's face. And then he's looking down at the sidewalk as he says, I'm not ashamed for the second time. Fantastic stuff. Yeah. Well, you say it's very self-important of John, but there is sort of a theme running throughout this story arc of John being self-aware as the lonely, brooding hero walking alone in the rain. He walks a lonely road. It's the only road that he's ever known. He's kind of aware that it's pretty self-indulgent. Well, yeah, and he he did it his way. Yeah. Also, it's another song that's relevant here. <laughs> so, speaking of relevant songs... he dead. Makes... You hate the news that you're dead. <laughs> he makes his way to the old apartment. <laughs> okay. Yeah, he decides if he's dying or if the plan he's got to save himself goes mushroom-shaped wrong, then he wants to be in a familiar place, namely the old apartment in Paddington, the flat that Nurgle chased him out of by murdering his roommate and landlady. That Nurgle, he's almost as bad as a politician. <laughs> Well, it seems like John doesn't like people's destinies being fucked with by anybody, be it heaven or hell or Downing Street. That's the common theme. At least that's the way he would put it. He says there's no squatters around because the feel of evil is pervasive and drives people off. Here's a panel where he looks an awful lot like Willem Dafoe. Oh, yeah! Try something like dropping acid in here and you'd be hotwired into a world of shit. He goes into his old flat and expertly makes a pentagram on the floor. Yeah, he's starting a ritual here, and he says that he's doing summonings, but no bindings. He talks about the cheap secondhand stuff that he's using to do this ritual. Got the chalk off Gary Lester about eight years ago. It's meant to have virgin's blood ground into it, but if I know Gary, he'll just have nipped down to the abattoir and nicked a pint or two out of the drains. And the first thing that he calls, he refers to as the second of three. You, down there in the dark, second out of three, you know who I am. God damn it, he's still fucking Irish. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he calls up the second of three, and the second is impressed with John's audacity at this point. Barebones ritual, no binding, rude form of address. At first, it basically just wants to eat him for his rudeness. But he says they talk for a while, he makes an offer, and he gets a yes. Yeah, John's got a line here. All that buggering about with knives and names is just mystique for beginners as far as something with your clout's concerned, and you know it. So they both know that the ritual is just icing. He addresses the powers of hell, and they come. He waits a moment before the next ritual, and he cleans up from the first ritual, leaving as little trace as he can. Wouldn't do to have the next thing he summons get a whiff of the first thing he summoned. Right, he says he even gets new candles for the second ritual. He doesn't seem optimistic about this working... Can you see me now, all you friends I've lost and betrayed? Do you wish me well then, or are you praying I'll be with you soon? Will you relish every scream when my blood starts hitting the floor, or will you turn away, afraid to look, the moment you've been waiting for too awful to look at, even for my sins? Sit back and enjoy the show. Now, he summons the third of the three, and we're told that the third of the three is an especially creative shapeshifter. It turns into all sorts of yucky stuff. Yeah, this is an effective series of panels as we see the revulsion on John's face and him leaning against the wall in exhaustion, but the camera angles, so to speak, prevent us from seeing the third, so we just get the impression, we are, we are left to imagine that its form is incredibly horrific. Yeah, in the next issue we get a little bit more of it. So, for the final step, John pulls out a bottle of Brendan's whiskey and tosses it back, and he drinks a toast to all his friends. Here's to Brendan for a fine drop, and to Kit for loving him as best she could. Here's to Emma and Zed and Marge and all the others. Good night, ladies. Here's to Ben and Frank and Richie and Gary and Anne-Marie and Judith, the whole sick crew. To Alec and Abby. To Chaz. To Matt. To Ray. To Mark and Martin. To Cheryl and Gemma. To Dad. 
And to me, because I deserve a shot of whiskey at least, and because, well, I did it my way. Yeah, worth noting here that although Marge is Merck's mother, he lists Marge in a different section <laughs> of his little list. Yeah, the ex-girlfriend section. She's in the ex-girlfriend section, whereas Merck is listed alongside Martin, her kind of boyfriend who we only met for two issues. Yeah. He was the one who, the butcher was his father. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> his dad was a jerk. Yeah, his dad is, like, such a vile character that, like, <laughs> he sticks out in the mind, even in a comic book series where there's demons and shit, you know? <laughs> demons in every issue, and this guy is especially vile. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he mentions here Alec and Abby, those are Swamp Thing and his wife, Abby Arcane or Abby Holland, and Ray we haven't seen in a really long time. That's Ray Mond, who was murdered by the Resurrection Crusade back in, like, number nine. Right. Okay, so, it's time. Constantine decides he's ready as he'll ever be, pulls out a razor, and slits his wrist. Holy shit. And as he's lying there dying, the first of the fallen appears. Suicide, Constantine? Not seeing it through to the bitter end? Doesn't matter. You're mine now. You always will be. The insult you dealt me with holy water was immense, Constantine. I shall enjoy spending the rest of eternity with you. The first is appearing in an incredibly blasphemous form here. He's basically appearing in the form of Christ with bleeding stigmata. And it seems here that John is committing suicide to hasten the time frame of his death. Instead of waiting for himself to die of cancer, he needs it to happen at a specific time. Right. Even though he said he probably only had three hours left anyway. Right. Aren't you supposed to wait till I die? I know you're dying, Constantine. I want to watch. And then we get a splash page <laughs> of John's wrist bleeding out as the first of the fallen hovers over him. And that's the end of that issue. That brings us to Hellblazer number 45, The Sting. Same credits as the last issue. On the cover, we see a resolute-looking John's face over sort of a bonfire burning tinder to the bottom and flame up above. Right. Now, we open on John. He's looking at his own reflection in a, a pool of his own blood. But it's better than looking up at the First of the Fallen. Yeah, the First of the Fallen is, as I said, in a blasphemous Christ-like form, and the blood is demon blood that sort of sizzles and gutters on the floor. We get the title of this issue, The Sting, and another splash page very similar to the one that we finished off the last issue with. I guess they decided that you deserve to get that splash page whichever issue you bought. <laughs> yeah, well, that gives us a little something to look forward to, as as bad as things look for John, this is apparently some kind of a sting. We have heard the vague insinuation that he has a plan, and now at last we are about to see the guts of the plan. Every minute of every day I'll kill you, Constantine. Over and over. I don't know, mate. You might have to join the queue. Notice how it's getting a little dark in here? Noticing the darkness, the first of the fallen turns in anger. You trespass? Trespass indeed. Right is the accusation. Wrong the accused. Mine this one is by right mine. The second of the fallen is... A sort of shapeless thing whose dialogue is always portrayed as narration boxes instead of speech bubbles. Yeah, he's basically an inky black shadow. And that's what John meant by isn't it dark in here. There's an animate shadow now inhabiting the room. So the first asks by what right the second is here, and the second says by contract. But the first says that he has the right to John's soul by insult. Uh, and before the first can fully process this, you ain't seen nothing yet, asshole. What's this? The third of the fallen appears, in the shape of a floating pile of organs. I come for my prize in form of its doom, and find interlopers? Lost brothers, you have no place here. This mortal is mine. Yeah, now at this point, the third and the second both reveal that they have the right to John's soul by contract. He has sold them his soul. 
The first insists that he has John's soul by right of insult, but he balks at actually telling his rivals what the insult was. If you don't tell them, I will, John says. I wrote that it's a secret insult. (laughs) Okay. And over the next page, although he's in pretty bad shape, John manages to tell the second and the third enough of the story that they start mocking and laughing at the first. Yeah. (laughs) My notes here look like the track listing to like a Godflesh album or something. It's like, track one, smoke and fire. Track two, reflection in blood pool. (laughs) Track three, another splash. Track four, lost brothers. Track five, mockery of the damned. (laughs) Nazarene's piss. Holy water? Did he invite you to go in a church? Did you go willingly, thinking it a shrine to yourself, not yet? desecrated. Here, he said, try a glass of this. It only looks like holy water. But John says he's made fools of them too. They wanted his soul so bad they got careless. Did not do a title search on those goods. With us you play the fool, Constantine? Perilous such behavior. I I don't play the fool with you, pal. I make the fool of you. You greedy bastards didn't stop to think, did, did you? You were so bloody keen to to get me in the bag, John Constantine, eh? What a prize. You were so eager to catch me, you got bloody careless. Should have checked me out before I signed on the dotted line, lads. I sold my soul to both of you, you pricks. They were so busy thinking about whether or not they could. They didn't stop to think (laughs) if they should. I'm just going to mention that the third has, over the course of this conversation, taken on the forms of Tom Constantine with a 666 on his forehead, and Astra, the girl from Newcastle. Oh yeah, that's an angry Astra. Now the first insults the third, who takes a swing at him. The first reminds them that they don't want to fight him. He can take either one of them, but they're in balance, they point out. He can't defeat both of them. Yeah, and the balance extends farther than that also, because there's also a tenuous balance of power between hell and heaven, which will be broken if there's a war in hell. Right, now John jumps in. He says one of them is due his soul. The moment he dies, one of them is required to take it. They don't have the power not to. Right, they all have an obligation to try and get his soul. So this isn't a situation they can just walk away from. But he'll be dead in under five minutes, which leaves them no time to decide which it will be. And if they go to war in hell, hell will be vulnerable to the powers above. They really hate this news. All three of them refuse to give up John. The third takes the form of Emma to taunt him. Emma, I believe, died in the same issue where Constantine made his first full appearance. Swamp Thing number 37. Ah, okay. She was one of those who died in the Invunch story in Swamp Thing. Yeah. John watches them deliberate for a long, suspenseful moment. Now the first changes form into a handsome, red-skinned man. He says they can't ally and they can't war. And the second points out the solution. If John doesn't die, then they'll have time to resolve this. Right, the second and the third points out that if they fight, God wins. Heaven will march over all three of them. The first is furious. No, I will not be party to such action. I will not let him do that to us. We are the three. And that's when John twists the knife, so to speak. Yeah, he actually opens up a second wound in his wrist. He says they've figured out what they're going to have to do, and he'll make the decision even easier for them. John knows he's got less than 15 seconds now, and in the dark he hears a female voice. Mother? Yeah, that's interesting, because we never really find out what that is. It doesn't come back in this story. Does it not come back to your knowledge? Well, I don't have much knowledge of what is coming in this Hellblazer run, actually. I'm fairly unspoiled for it. Except I know that Steve Dillon becomes the penciler in about ten issues. Right. It's not John's mother, because she wouldn't say mother. That would be a really weird way to introduce yourself. Well, John's not anybody's mother, so... Yeah, that's the weird part. Who addresses John as mother? So the first refuses to take part in saving John. He says he'd rather go to war than let John best him again. And as they argue about this, the third is hilariously in the form of Elvis right now. Oh yeah, that's right. I have to admit, this cracked me up. They're having this really serious conversation and one of the devils is standing there as Elvis. It's just a really goofy panel in the middle of a really serious situation. Yeah, the third here points out that he doesn't fear war with the other two, but he does fear becoming a slave of heaven. 
Have you not forgotten, first of the three, better to reign? Right, he's quoting John Milton's Paradise Lost. Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. Well, yeah, I, I think in this context we're supposed to infer that it's not just from Paradise Lost, but it's what actually happened. He's not quoting Milton, he's quoting what the devil said when he fell. Right. Milton reported accurately. Right, yeah, exactly. This is their little little motto, their little credo that they live by. Yeah. Okay, so they'll be slaves of heaven if they go to war, and the second and third basically badger the first until he finally agrees. Yeah, he shouts, enough! They start making a pattern. Yeah, they draw this web of energy over Constantine. The first addresses him, saying he's going to heal him, and he's going to make it hurt as much as he can. I hope you'll graciously allow me that small pleasure in the moment of your greatest victory. I thought you would. Thank you. I can't scream. I want to scream so much, but I can't. He snaps my ribs one by one and then wrenches out my sternum with a noise like a falling tree. He has to twist it at the end to sever some loose cartilage. Once he's pushed my heart up against my spine to keep it out of the way, he sinks his hands into the black tarry swamps that my lungs have become and incinerates them. He regrows and replaces everything, and that hurts ten times as much for some reason. And almost as an afterthought, he seals up my butchered arm with a finger hotter than a welder's torch. He doesn't smile once. He does all these things to me, and he doesn't even enjoy himself. That's a scary thought. John has beaten the first so badly that even as the first is torturing John as much as he can, he can't enjoy it. He's too angry to enjoy it. And this is a really effective panel, too, as we don't see any of this horrific, gory detail that John is describing. Just John's attempting to scream face. Then they decide that's not good enough, I guess. A little fine-tuning yet, I think. Because they burn John to a cinder and then rebuild him a brand new body. It's apparently very painful. I'm not really sure what the purpose of that was, except to hurt more and fill a couple more pages. Dragging this whole meeting between the three Fallen and John out over an entire issue is maybe a questionable choice. Mm. This is the climax of the story, and it makes sense that it receives an issue, but there is a bit of repetition in the three devils arguing over what they're going to do. And... Although I think Ennis does a really good job of building the suspense up for what John's plan is, and then revealing it. Yeah. Once it's clear what it is, the rest of the issue drags a little bit. And this is sort of the one flaw in an otherwise great story. I don't really understand what the point of them destroying his body and completely rebuilding it after rebuilding his lungs was. And it seems like if they can just do that to him because they want to, what limit is there on their ability to just take him and torture him now? Well, in any case, uh, we get a full page devoted to the destruction of John's body, and another page devoted to his rebirth. The art looks really cool here. Yeah, I particularly want to call out this second panel, as John is just this smoking, ruined body, and horrifically, perhaps still conscious? One hand kind of thrown up against his skull in despair. I don't think we've mentioned that the pages to this issue are all in a red backdrop. Mm, that's true. Painful? Yeah, but nowhere near as bad as the knife I just stuck in your pride, you wanker. I dress quickly and don't look at them once. I want out of here right now, but inside I'm exhilarated, singing my heart out, soaring all the way up there on cloud friggin' nine. I beat the devil, I beat all three of the bastards, and I got them to cure my sodding lung cancer while I was at it. Wait a minute, he brought spare clothes? He knew they would incinerate his body? Good question. He didn't actually take his clothes off before they destroyed him. I'm just nitpicking now. I just thought it was funny that he apparently brought a duffel bag to this meeting. <laughs> yeah, it is weird. Uh, we don't know where these other clothes came from. Constantine. More than anything I have ever wanted. More than I want the Nazarene's heart on an ivory platter. Wait a minute. He hates John more than he hates Jesus now. More than I want to bathe in angels' blood while the Lord of Hosts drowns in banshees' excrement before me. I want you, Constantine. I will kill you a thousand billion... No, you won't. You won't even kill me once, old son. That's another old son. I love when he says old son. In fact, I reckon you'll be doing your level best to keep me in one piece. As soon as I die, the old soul's gotta be claimed, right? So the minute I snuff it, you three go to war over me, like it or not, and you all lose. Life's gonna be a breeze with you three looking out for me. Yeah, I don't think that there are three devils who want to make sure Constantine doesn't die is gonna be reflected in the rest of Garthenis' run. No, probably not. Well... Probably figure out a way to barter each other other things for one of them to get his soul. Yeah, they'll figure a way out of this eventually. 
I also want to point out, John says here, I'm the most hated man who ever lived. Wow. <laughs> uh, yeah, and the third is in the shape of him being suspended from meat hooks. Yeah. As he says that. At the very least, they've done a good job on executing the idea of a shapeshifter who actually takes on a different form every couple of panels. Yeah. Out of nowhere, John is struck by inspiration, and he sort of doesn't want to. He knows it's not a good idea, but he decides to act on it anyway. Oh yeah, one other thing, fellas. He flips them the bird and says, up yours. And that's the end of the issue. Sort of an iconic Hellblazer moment there. Yeah, often listed as one of John's great moments, tricking all three of the devils to save himself from a natural death. But the story arc is not yet over. Yeah, that's right. We get one more issue called Falling Into Hell, which lists itself as an epilogue. Written by Garth Ennis, pencils by Will Simpson, inks by four inkers, Mark Pennington, Mark McKenna, Kim DeMulder, and Stan Walk, colors by Tom Zwicko, and cover by Tom Conti. We have a metropolitan hospital, and inset over it a horned skull's face. We find John in bed, drunk. Turns out he's been drinking himself silly for two days, thinking about the stupidity of what he just did. Yeah, he's reminiscing about doing stupid things when you're not thinking straight, and he's got a bed covered in beer cans, whiskey bottles, and an ashtray stuffed with cigarettes. So he's been smoking in bed, which is pretty stupid. Yeah, well, and when you've got brand new lungs, too. And a brand new body that ostensibly isn't addicted to nicotine. Yeah, I don't think he really intended to quit smoking after this. <laughs> well, he might have not intended to, but he, he probably just intended to get his lung cancer cured. Yeah. The getting his nicotine addiction cured would have been a uh, an unexpected side effect of the fact that they destroyed his body and regrew it entirely. Yeah, that's right. But we saw back in the first issue of the story, he, you know, he decided to quit smoking because it was killing him and on the walk home bought himself some cigarettes. So John goes on for a page recapping how he beat cancer and the devils and how dangerously stupid a thing it was to do. He says he has no sympathy for the devil, but he seems to feel a little guilt for the risk he took with the world. Since if hell had gone to war and heaven had conquered hell, earth would have fallen under the dominion of heaven. Yeah, which he describes as slavery for all humans. Right after he left the old apartment, the shock and the guilt hit him and he spent the last two days drinking it off. Yeah, I want to point out a couple of interesting or good lines that he has here. At one point he says he does stupid things in packets of ten. <laughs> he also says that the lords of hell will be angry that the only human to get one over on them in a thousand years is a cheap, flashy little crook. Yeah, that's fair. And they'll be waiting for their chance to take revenge. Yeah, this is where he addresses the thing about the devils having to protect him. Do you have pages falling out there? Yeah, this is basically a brand new trade, and this folio fell out of it. Yeah, the binding on my copy's trying to fall apart, too. I thought they'd actually be protecting me, anxious not to fight over my soul, but that's a normal human way of thinking. I got them with a trick so simple it was perfect, once. From now on, they'll have all the angles covered, and they'll be searching for a way round the hold I've got on them. Devils cheat and scheme and lie all the time. I'm just a lucky amateur. Those friggers will be watching over me, all right. They'll watch everything I do until I make just one tiny wrong move, and then they'll be down on me like a ton of shit. And then, Christ, welcome to the life on the knife edge, Constantine. Who's up late polishing the blade? It's the devil. Is that? It's an Elvis Costello song. Ah. Called Man Out of Time, actually. Oh. Appropriate. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Is the song about a man who has run out of time? I always thought it was about a man who was not in his time. Oh, no, I think it's a man who's run out of time. Oh, okay. Okay. What that song's about. Oh, oh, yeah, that's what I was going to mention. He calls them friggers. <laughs> Has something happened and he's not allowed to use the F word anymore? I don't know. Was he ever allowed to use the F word? I'm not sure. I remember you mentioning that he had sort of gotten one by the censor back when he was a child and the man who lived in the tin shed called him a marhar, you know? Oh, yeah, I remember thinking of that too, but if he's not allowed to swear, that actually surprises me. I thought characters in Vertigo comics could say the F word, but he may not be a Vertigo comic yet. They definitely do in Preacher. Yeah, that's right. Anyway, so John goes out, and pretty much as soon as he steps out of the apartment, it starts raining. Shit. And then, Kit! Yeah, I was actually wondering what inspired this incredible grimace on his face. Look at this face! 
He's so angry that it's raining that he's suddenly drawn by Rob Liefeld. <laughs> he looks really mad. And it's just the rain. He's just pissed that it's raining on him. Can things get worse? And then he bumps into Kit, and they hug, and he says things can get better. So they go to a cafe, and they start chatting like it hasn't been eight years since they saw each other. Yeah, I wrote that they're catching up, but I guess that's what it looks like when you chat with someone like it has been eight years. So Right, John says that they're, they're thick as thieves immediately. Right. Damn bad coffee, he points out. She says that he looks like shit and asks, um, Do you roll in gutters as a hobby, or does someone pay you? I loved that line. I've never seen anybody pay him for anything. <laughs> He's never except had anything. For, except for picking the right dog, right? <laughs> never had anything approximating a job. <laughs> it, it, John Constantine is usually, outside of the pages of his own book, portrayed as sort of a mystical private eye. That was the tack that they took in the TV series, right? I think so. But actually, he doesn't. We never really see him get hired to solve a mystery, and if he does, the person who paid him almost certainly dies. <laughs> yeah, he never does any work. Yeah. I want to point out here John's description of Kit. And look at her. Raven black hair and deep... No, no, he's not fucking Irish. She's Irish. <laughs> it's terrible. And look at her. Raven black hair and deep green eyes and snow white skin. Miss Ireland. Which is calling back to what he said when he looked at her picture in Brendan's lighthouse back in 42. Right. And she also establishes here that she never goes back home to Ireland because she has made a clean break with her parents and doesn't want to see them again. That's right. She's from Belfast, but she never goes back. She asks what's up with him, and they speak in unison as he tries to blow her off. You know, the usual, this, this and, and that. that. But John is laughing and grinning, apparently enjoying the fact that she can see through his bullshit. Yeah, John can't or won't keep any secrets from her, so he ends up coming clean, basically. Yeah, she's the only one who's always been able to see right through him. And she says, in fairness, that he's a top-drawer bullshitter and would probably fool most other people. I think you could have foxed me completely if you wanted to, but you didn't. You always came to us because you wanted a break from all that, didn't you? We get a panel here of the three of them together, her and Brendan and Constantine, and she's wearing dreadful coveralls. <laughs> oh, wow. Floral print coveralls over a shoulderless black sweater. It's not, a, it's not a good look. We're talking about Brendan now. She says she cried when she heard. She probably still loves Brendan, John is thinking. They toast to his memory, and note how it feels weird to do it with coffee. I did love those times we spent together, the loving couple and the liar who came in from the cold. They had a light shining in them that mesmerized me, a light of freedom and wonder, of throwing cares aside and dancing under the stars until morning comes. I wanted that so much, and with them, I maybe got a little of it. And if Brendan drowned his light in whiskey, Kit just kept on shining. So at this point, Chaz walks in. You, I thought, Yoletta said, you bloody said you were friggin' snuffin' it! Chaz is furious that John is alive, or really he's furious that John didn't die and didn't go tell him. Chaz is pissed that John got him all sad for nothing, basically and didn't tell him he was alive, but once he's clear that John's alive, they arrange to meet for a pint later. And that's it. Oi, you can't come in here and swear and shout. Who do you think you are? Says the man behind the counter. Shut your mouth and piss off and make me a cup of tea, you little asshole. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, he, he's walking with Kit again, making his way to the Red Rover with Kit for a drink, because they said it was weird toasting Brendan with coffee. This is when John realizes that Chaz isn't the only one he told he was dying, and he hasn't told anybody he's still alive. Right, exactly. A cold realization washes over him, and there's a lovely facial expression in the bottom center panel of this page, as he has this sort of pit-of-his-stomach moment of realizing, Matt! He and Kit get into a, a taxi, which takes them to the hospital. He runs full speed up to Matt's room, thinking about how He's an awful human being. Matt might have passed away in the time that he's been, you know, drinking away the last few days. And he deserved to know that Constantine was going to be okay. Yeah, he's thinking how Matt's probably dead and he's let down another friend. Which, he's definitely pulled off a dick move here, but he maybe has an overdeveloped sense of guilt in that he would not be responsible for Matt's death regardless. 
Right, and they have already said goodbye to each other. Yeah, he's he's almost ready to add Matt to the list of people he got killed, and that's not being entirely fair to himself. Right. Anyway, he gets there, and Matt is reading the paper. Yeah, the anticlimax here is nicely sold by the panel layout. We get increasing zooms on John as he frantically races to find Matt, and then finally a, a long overhead shot of the both of them together when he finds that Matt is just fine. Well, dying, but alive. Kit follows after. Matt remarks that he can tell she's a pretty good friend. In fact, she leaves to get them a, a cup of coffee, and Matt comments that that's a woman who knows him, echoing earlier when he told us, basically, that she can always see through him. Right. Matt can tell that she knows the real Constantine on a level that few people do. Yeah, and Matt opines that friends who know you well are a valuable thing to keep around. Yeah, he suspects correctly, I think, that John was really only as friendly with him as he was because they were in the same boat with the cancer. I'd imagine you'd let most people get little glimpses of you, so each one you meet only has a little idea what you're all about. But your friends, that's different. Friends are important, John. It's friends who remind you who you are. It's having friends to come back to that allows you to play the mystery man. And this is sort of reinforcing what John said to Cheryl, that normalcy is, is actually what he fights for. A normal life is a better life than the one John leads. Right. Matt is interrupted by a bad feeling in his guts. He has John call a nurse, and then he starts coughing up blood. Doctors and nurses rush in. People and machinery start moving. Urgent shouting. A muffled curse. I take a one-second glimpse round the door, gambling with my sanity. Matt screams. Blood and excrement hit the floor in equal quantities. The scream becomes a gurgle. Someone says flatline. John steps into the stairway, unwilling to hear them call the time. It'd be like evidence for the prosecution at my trial. John Constantine, you've been found guilty of first-degree cold-hearted bastardy, of being a twisted evil frigger who sneaks and creeps his way out of trouble that those less privileged have no defense against, swaggering merrily away from lung cancer while a good friend's organs split and rupture, without even a hope of the salvation you enjoy. He heads down the stairs and steps outside into the rain. And this is good, you know, we want Constantine to live because he's our main character, but it's good that Ennis reminds us lots of people don't get out of this. John is privileged to have found an out. He had no right to expect one. He stands in the rain and thinks about what a piece of shit he is. I didn't kill Matt, but I escaped when I shouldn't have. I cheated. I laughed in the face of the devil, when all that other people can do is succumb. The rain washes over me, every drop of it like liquid guilt, drenching me in my own evil. He's not wrong, but he is perhaps being a little self-indulgent again. Being the lone hero out in the rain, thinking about how tough it is. Yeah, he's being really hard on himself here. You know, he came to the conclusion that he very nearly screwed over the whole world. But really, the whole origin of the reason that he couldn't die was because he pissed off the first of the fallen by saving Brendan's soul. Yeah, that's a good point. This moment of him hating himself in the rain kind of mirrors the speech he gave, the Who Am I speech, at the beginning of this story arc, on the second page of the first issue. I'm the one who steps from the shadows, all trench coat and cigarette and arrogance, ready to deal with the madness. I walk my path alone. Who would want to walk with me? Kit is making her way back with the coffee. She walks in to find Matt's body covered with a sheet, blood all over the walls. Dear Jesus, she mutters. She drops the three cups of coffee to the ground and runs out to meet John. Kit catches up with John, urging him to come out of the rain. He says she should stay away from him. All his friends end up dying. I'm a big girl now, John. I'll take my chances. She kneels beside him and holds him in the rain. And we end on Hogue's lyrics. We watched our friends grow up together, and we saw them as they fell. Some of them fell into heaven, some of them fell into hell. From Rainy Night in Soho. That gets me right here. <laughs> Seriously, that's... That's a, that's a good song. Yeah, it's a good song, and it's a, it's a good moment. The song invoke something, you know, you know, the title Falling Into Hell is not terribly suggestive as a Hellblazer title. He's almost fallen into hell like seven times in the last 40 issues. Right. Um, One time he walked down there. Yeah, that's right. On purpose. <laughs> <laughs> he walked into a demon's office and yelled at him. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. That's the thing. <laughs> but in the context of this lyric, it's, it's beautiful. It's not saying, you know, John might go to hell this issue, because he does all the time. It's saying... Sometimes we lose people and there's nothing we can do about it. Right. And that's what the Pogues lyric is getting at, that everyone has 
people they've lost, people they've left behind. So this is a really interesting epilogue for this story arc, a reminder that John's not better or cooler than other people, that real life is sort of the thing that matters, that, that his dangerous lifestyle isn't to be idolized and that lots of people don't get the benefit of tricking their way out of death like he did. Right. Um, it's sort of necessary in order to treat the subject matter of this story arc respectfully that although John gets out of it, it's acknowledged that a lot of people don't get out of it. And so we get a, a sobering moment, a sobering reminder at the end of the story. And you said that everybody has people they've, they've lost. What's the line from Everybody's Got Dead People? Everybody's Got Dead People? Yeah. Oh, it's from Guardians of the Galaxy. Everybody's Got Dead People. Right, uh, Rocket says it. Oh, boo-hoo. My wife and child are dead. Oh, I don't care if it's mean. Everybody's Got Dead People. It's no excuse to get everybody else dead along the way. Yeah. That's a good line from Rocket Raccoon there. It's a wonder Garth Ennis didn't decide to put that in as the as the epilogue to the, <laughs> or the epigraph. Well, he had the disadvantage of working about 20 years before that movie. <laughs> That's a fair point. I assume it's from a comic book. <laughs> so, what do you think of Dangerous Habits? Well, I I liked it so much that I read 40 issues of Jamie Delano, <laughs> Hellblazer, <laughs> and started a podcast. <laughs> still, still being mean to Jamie Delano. <laughs> well, Weeks after the after the event. No, no, I don't I don't say that to be mean. I but literally, like the whole reason that that I'm reading the Hellblazer series, a big part of the reason that this podcast is happening is how impressed I was with this story arc. My initial intention had been to just read the Garth Ennis run on mm-hmm. Hellblazer, but because we're doing the podcast, we went back and read the first 40 issues as well. So this is actually the first story that you sought out from Hellblazer. Yeah, that's right. And it made such a strong impression on me that I delayed the gratification of reading more Garth Ennis Hellblazer until after I had caught up on every Hellblazer issue to this point. And I think perhaps nothing more needs to be said as to whether Ennis has established himself as a writer on the book. This is perhaps the iconic moment for Constantine from the moment it came out. Yeah, that's right. Not to mention the basis for the movie. Exactly. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing where this takes us. Yeah, just looking forward to what's next. I want to say, even though it's not nice to say, I am looking forward to Steve Dillon taking over. He has had his moments, and... I have been happy to call them out, but I'm not the biggest fan of Will Simpson's pencils on this book. There's a lot of really extreme facial expressions, some character models shifting from page to page. Yeah, John's face looks very different, just from panel to panel throughout this story arc, especially this issue. Yeah, he's done some lovely work here creating the uh, the devils and other moments that we've called out, but at the same time it's hard to get attached to characters whose appearances shift so radically throughout the book. As well, I don't know that it was Simpson's decision. I, I wouldn't blame him for it. How many monocolored pages there are over the course of this story arc? How much of it is either grayscale or sepia-toned? And it's Tom Zuiko who, you know, hasn't relied on that technique up to this point in the book. So I don't know where that comes from. Yeah, there are, there are pages where it's more effective than others, but, but I'm not the biggest fan of it. Yeah, I can agree with that. I think that overall the art looks good. But I can agree that that's a trick that gets overused, and there's certainly a lot of irregularity of the facial models. You got a Constantine moment? I would like to say that I think the most Constantine moment of these three issues is when he gives the room full of devils the finger. Okay. But I am afraid that the moment that is actually most in character for Constantine is when he's standing out in the rain beating himself up for something that he had no power over. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, okay. I mean, I think if we really wanted to be, if we wanted to be charitable, we could say that tricking the three devils at once is a Constantine moment. It is, after all, an iconic moment for John Constantine. I have chosen this moment here. Oi! Oi, lads! By now, I suppose... Ah, shit. I suppose you figured out what you'll have to do. Better... Better get on with it. (laughs) Okay, so at this point, they know what they have to do, and... He just jumps in and annoys them while kind of almost unable to get his message out. Basically, this is his best plan ever, and he almost screws it up by talking too much. (laughs) 
I also like the unique brand of self-pitying arrogance in I'm the most hated man who ever lived. <laughs> like, three devils hate you. There's, there's probably some people that hate you, but not a lot. <laughs> right. Yeah, a little bit narcissistic there. Yeah. And that ties back to the moment that you chose to. Like, Constantine does a fair amount of good, but he's also kind of got a an overblown opinion of his own his own greatness, his own effectiveness. Oh, yeah, and also his own darkness. Yeah. John Constantine will return about three episodes from now. But join us next week for Custer's Law in Preacher. Vertigais is written and hosted by me and Sean. Our music is by Kelly Joyce Fielder. I produce the show and Eric handles social media. You can reach him at Vertigais on Twitter, and you can reach me at BlankCastSean. You can send us an email if you have a question you'd like answered, or want your views known on what you'd like to hear on the show, vertiguys at gmail.com. You can also find us at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Our website is vertiguys.blueberry.com, where there's lots more episodes plus show notes on every episode. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y, but only in that context. Don't use that for actual blueberries. Indeed. You would be wrong. If you want to leave us a rating or review, we would certainly appreciate it as it helps people to find the show, and we'd be happy to call out positive reviews on the air. Tell a friend. But as always, thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you. Take it away, Shane. I took shelter from a shower And I stepped into your arms On a rainy night in Soho The wind was whistling all its Saul Bellow, Humboldt's Gift. Okay. Looks like Dustin Hoffman is in it. <laughs> Dustin Hoffman there. Yeah, that's a way to have a cover of your book. Very realistic drawings of people who may or may not be in it. <laughs> I just want Jonathan Frakes. <laughs> what? Like the cover of my novel is just like a painting of Jonathan Frakes. <laughs> He's wearing a tuxedo. A wry smile beckons the reader to open the page. This is sounding pretty effective, so... I know!